Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how language changes over time. If you're a regular listener and you love the show, you can become a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash words for granted. This time we're talking about a number of things. Translation, linguistic representation, the stylistic character of officialese, and more. All through the unusual lens of the warning message inside Kinder Surprise Eggs. I hope you love it. Keith Con Harris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be here. My pleasure. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. So before we get into discussing your latest book, The Babel Message, uh, you have quite an eclectic background. So just give us the high-level spark notes summary of your professional work. Well, I'm a sociologist and a writer. A lot of my career has been spent working on two particular areas. One is the sociology of uh, heavy metal music scenes. And the other is sociology of Jewish communities, particularly the British Jewish community. So writing a book on language, whilst it was a bit of a departure for me, it, it drew both on my sociological understanding of what language is, but also on my curiosity more generally, my desire to find out more about the world. Yeah. So, so what's your elevator pitch for the Babel message? I have to make the elevator pitch slightly different for an American audience. The book's starting point is the warning messages you find inside Kinder Surprise Eggs. Now, Kinder Surprise Eggs are not sold in America, but something similar is sold called a Kinder Joy, which also has the warning messages. But a Kinder Surprise is a foil-wrapped chocolate egg with a yellow capsule inside representing the yolk, and in that there's a self-assembly toy for kids. It's got quite a lot of small parts, and therefore that's why you had the warning messages, because uh, it, it would be fatal if you gave it to uh, a two-year-old or something like that. The warning message reads in English, or I should say it used to read because it's changed a bit. It used to read in English, warning, read, and keep. Toy not suitable for children under three years. Small parts might be swallowed or inhaled. So that message is in a tiny piece of paper, and it's translated into about 30 languages. I think it's 32. And this is quite an unusual thing to see, and I was sort of fascinated by it when I used to buy them for my kids, particularly that there were languages there that you don't often see in product packaging, such as things like Georgian or Albanian. And over time, I thought, you know, 
the problem with the warning message sheet is they're not enough languages. So I started commissioning translations into other languages, both living and dead languages. And in the end, I wrote a book about the process of obtaining these translations and how in an unexpected way, this focus on something very tiny is a way into some very big questions about what language actually is. So in the intro, you describe it as an overturning of the Babel myth. And the book is called The Babel Message. So what does that mean exactly? And in and, and answering that, remind us what the Babel myth is again. So the Babel myth is in the book of Genesis, and it essentially is an explanation about two things, about why is it that human beings speak different languages and why is it that people don't get along and people fight each other. And the story says that this is very early in human history, according to the Bible, human beings gathered together to build a tower that would reach the heavens. And they were able to build this tower or start building this tower, at least because everyone spoke the same language. And then God starts to think if they can reach the heavens, what else might they be able to do? So what God does is to, the phrase actually goes, confuse their tongues, make them speak different languages. And because they spoke different languages, they weren't able to get on. They weren't able to cooperate and the tower is never finished. And that's the Babel myth. And it basically relates linguistic diversity to human conflict. And what I want to say in the book is, is that isn't necessarily true that association. It certainly doesn't have to be true. And in fact, a lot of the time when human beings who speak different languages uh, are in conflict with each other, it's not because they speak different languages. I mean, nobody, as I say in the book, nobody says that World War II was a conflict between German speakers and English, Russian, and French speakers. I mean, it didn't help, but it wasn't really, it, it certainly wasn't at the heart of it. And then I go a little bit further in that overturning of the Babel message, uh, of the Babel myth, rather, by saying that actually maybe not understanding each other's languages could actually be an aid to people actually getting along. And one of the starting points of that is my experience on social media. And there are a lot of problems on social media, but I don't think linguistic diversity is one of them. I think, in fact, it's the opposite. It's about that social media has given us a, a, a way of projecting ourselves on a global scale so that people find out too much about the other. So some of those things that would normally be held back, you're confronted with. Now, that's not a linguistic problem, or at least it's, it, it, can, it is sometimes partially linguistic, but it's certainly not linguistic at heart. And then I also thought that I've always really loved the languages that I don't speak. I love reading scripts I don't understand. I love the sounds of language I don't understand. And actually, I felt that that could be a basis for human togetherness. Just standing in awe, if you like, at the other who speaks something incredibly complicated that you will never work out, and vice versa, and vice versa. That somebody could be in awe at me because I speak English, this bizarre language, or that I can read English words. 
So I think that may be an unexplored way of bringing people together in mutual appreciation of the languages they don't understand and never will. Yeah. So, so you kind of call this being a language fan and you kind of contrast this with the sort of the usual academic approach to understanding language and you sort of advocate for this quote unquote superficial appreciation, like the thing that you just described, appreciating sounds and scripts that you don't understand. And I will say that in reading your book, I did find myself actually stopping to actually observe the Kinder Surprise Egg warning message in different languages, I actually found myself stopping to just observe the scripts, to observe the consonant clusters, to observe the diacritics. You, you know, I, I, I usually, when, when, when there's a text in a foreign language in a book, usually you just like see it for a moment, or I, I usually see it for a moment and then skip to the English part and, and then carry on. So yeah, that, that was a unique experience in reading the book. I mean, I think there are hidden pleasures in observing closely something that's taken for granted. And we live in a world that is stuffed full of writing, particularly on product packaging that, that most of us only don't notice or only selectively notice. But when you actually look at something closely, you start to see the extraordinary anarchy, if you like, and the difficulty of putting together to corralling, if you like, these, these multiple languages. It's actually a really, really difficult task to put together a multilingual sheet of warning messages, particularly if you've got over 30, as you do here in a tiny different space. And one of the things I discover in the book, and actually I've delved into after the book was published, is there are actually mistakes on it, which I thought was a fascinating thing to find out because this is a product made by uh, one of the largest multinationals. Uh, they're called Ferrero. They also, they own Tic Tac. They own... Nutella, in fact, Nutella is how the company actually was founded in the first place in post-war Italy. It's quite empowering to see that massive multinational corporations also make mistakes, that they also find this difficult. Sure. So, for example, the major mistake is they use the wrong diacritics in Estonian. Estonian uses a what's called a tilde, like the N on Espana. On some vowels in Estonian, you have that little curvy line, but they got it wrong. Instead, on the warning message, there were macrons over some of the vowels. A macron is a straight line over, uh, over a letter. And I did point it out to them and didn't hear anything. And then a few months ago, suddenly it had changed. And I'm, I'd like to think that was partly my doing, uh, you know, that I had some influence on this piece of paper that is opened by hundreds of thousands of people every day. So, so this is a nice segue into the actual warning message, which going forward in this episode, we'll call the message. That is the, the piece of paper we find in the Kinder Surprise Eggs. Tell me some of the languages that we find on the message and, and why those languages. So first of all, you have all of the languages of the European Union, all of the official languages, I should say, of the European Union, except for two. Now, that's legally required for the product to be sold in Europe. I'll explain what the two missing ones are in a minute. You also have the languages of the wider European area, and in fact, the wider Eurasian area. So you have things like Turkish. You have some of the languages of Central Asia and the Caucasus, so you have Armenian, Azerbaijani, you have product information, but not a warning message in Kyrgyz and Kazakh, 
and Russian as well, and, and Ukrainian. It's quite interesting to see what's going to become of the warning message in future years. Uh, you also have Chinese. You don't have any other Southeast Asian languages, but if you buy Kinder Egg in some of those countries like Thailand, you will see a separate warning message that does have some of those languages on it. So it's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. I actually calculated that about over half the world's population speaks at least one of the languages on here, which is pretty good. And wow. if you if you add in people's second languages, then you start to get the majority of the world will speak or at least understand at least one language. Uh, but what's not there? Well, it's interesting if you take the example of EU languages. The two ones I'm missing are Irish and Maltese. Now, in both cases, both Ireland and Malta have two official languages, and, the, and one of them is English in both cases. So what Ferreira appear to do is if an official language is English, or if the official language is a major world language, they won't provide a translation into that local language. So there are examples of this. You don't have translations in Catalan or Basque. You don't have them in Welsh. And some of these are serious, have far more speakers than some of the languages that are there. About a million people who speak Estonian. I think it's about 5 million people who speak Catalan. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Have... So, so the metric is not the number of speakers. It's really just national status, right? It's partly about what they're obliged to put on there. But, but they try, as far as I can tell, to limit that. Otherwise, it will get completely out of control. And you can see, like, I've seen warning messages that are found in eggs in South America. Because Spanish and Portuguese are on there, they don't bother with Guarani, which is the co-official language of Paraguay. Uh, someone, a friend, bought one for me in South Africa. South Africa has, I think it's 12 official languages. And the only languages that are on the message are English and Dutch, which is fairly similar to Afrikaans. But none of the languages like Kwanzaa or Zulu or any of those languages are on there. It's the same in some way in, in North Africa. You have Arabic on the warning message sheet, but you don't have any of the Berber languages or anything like that. So they're cleaving towards, uh, if, they, if they can get away with it, they will cleave towards world languages. That's also the case in India, where there are no Indian languages on this, and there is only English because it is an official language in India. So you can see that they're kind of cutting corners and that they're not they're not putting the message in Latvian or Georgian to have fun with it. They're trying to uh, leap over various hurdles to selling their product in those particular countries. But in the process of seeing that, you can see how it is that some languages flourish and gain official status, whereas others are relegated. And you also have some of the languages on this that are actually mutually intelligible. So Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish are all, to varying degrees, mutually intelligible, at least the standard versions and at least when they're written down. But because they're three different states with three different official languages, they have to be on this piece of paper. And that tells us something about the way languages become official. It's not because of linguistic distinctiveness, although it sometimes can be a contributing factor. It's to do with the nation state and how the nation state works and how supranational bodies like the EU work. 
So the way we, we see the world as being linguistically diverse cannot be separated from uh, the institutions and the structures that human beings build. Sure. So, so in, some, in some way, Ferrero's inclusion of all of those languages on the tiny slip is, is not, it's not directly supporting linguistic diversity, so to say. It's really just uh, complying with international bureaucracies for selling more products. Oh, yeah, of course. And I, I yeah. don't think that's, I don't say that to criticize them, although I do think it's a missed opportunity. I mean, I, one of the things I say in the book is Ferrero is headquarters. It was born in the Piedmont region of, uh, of Italy, you know, around Alba, to be more specific. And there is a local language there called Piedmontese. And it is, it, it's not dead yet, but it is, it's still fighting, still fighting for light against the dominance of standard Italian. I say, how about, you just put that on there, a Piedmontese message, just for some sense of sentimentality. But of course, I know that will never happen because that's not how these companies work. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so one last thing on this like topic of inclusion versus exclusion of languages on the message. I want to talk a little bit about how actually including a national language might actually exclude the majority of a population, ironically. Creole in Haiti, for example, I believe they just will use French. French is required by the government for official warning, so the kind of warning that you would get in the Kinder Surprise Egg. But the irony is that the majority of the people that are actually in Haiti might actually not want that message or need that message in French. Well, that also leads into issues, the two separate issues there that, that need unpacking. One of them is the relationship between languages that are mostly spoken and written languages. Now that's mm -hmm. the case in, in, in terms of Arabic. Standard Arabic is used throughout the Arab speaking world, but locally the form of Arabic that is spoken in Morocco, the vernacular, and the form of Arabic that's spoken in Yemen is very different. Now on the specific example of Haiti, Creole is sometimes actually written down. But it has struggled for status throughout Haiti's history, as have other Creoles. The only, one, the only one that I can think of that has managed to embed itself as an official language is the Creole in uh, Papua New Guinea called Tokpisin, which is used in, in, in official contexts, although that's a relatively uh, recent development. So, so languages have to fight, and their speakers have to fight. There are issues about prestige. And sometimes there is a deliberate policy of seeking out language extinction. Certainly that was the case for much of French history. And to some extent today is that if you compare France with Spain, in Spain, you have millions of Catalan speakers. In France, Occitan, which is very closely related to Catalan is spoken in the south of France. It has a few tens of thousands of speakers left. That's because of very, very official and very specific policy of linguistic centralization happened in France. It did happen to extent in Spain, but it was much less successful. And that's also the case with uh, Native American languages, some of whom have managed to fight back, often creating their, their own ways of writing in the process. Uh, but some of them were basically driven to, to extinction. And it's only really in the last few decades that, that Indigenous people have began to fight back and had uh, degrees of success in some locations in doing so. Let's pivot now. I want to go again back to the actual message itself. 
the message seems straightforward in terms of what it's communicating to us. Do you mind reading it once more again for listeners? Warning, read and keep. That bit's in red. Toy not suitable for children under three years. Small parts might be swallowed or inhaled. Right. Okay. So, so that seems extremely straightforward in terms of what it is telling us. But what are some of the assumptions that are actually baked into that message? Well, this is, this is actually a particular form of English that you see in this kind of context. You notice that there aren't articles. It doesn't say the toy is not suitable. It says toy not suitable. You're also cutting out various verbs, including the verb to be. Warning, read and keep doesn't include, it doesn't say, warning, you should read and keep this. This is not how we speak in everyday language. This is a particular kind of official ease uh, that is designed to deliberately, if you like, be chilling and forbidding. It speaks to someone it doesn't speak with people. That isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, it, it has a kind of purpose, although we do have to wonder whether a warning message that wasn't written like that might at least have some novelty value because we often skate over officialese because we see it so much. And we, a lot of us know that a lot of this is to do with, uh, you know, ass covering in terms of the law. Another thing there is the word warning, which I did a deep dive into in the book because it suddenly occurred to me it's a quite bizarre thing to have on a warning because it's a tautology. It's basically saying this is a warning. Now, why would you need to actually say that? Well, in some other messages here, they do not use the word warning. In fact, most of them use variants of a word like attention, which we can also use in English, but it's a bit less common. Now, attention reaches out to you, to the person. Warning draws attention to the self. So it, it's, it's one of those areas where we cannot assume that the message in every single language is received in exactly the same way. There are subtle differences. There are also some less subtle differences. For example, the line about the toy not suitable for children under three years, uh, that's only on seven messages, including the English one. And, and what do the others say instead? You'll have to read the book. It's a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. But I would say, and here's the big thing, here's the big thing. A few months ago, the English message had changed from out of nowhere. It now says, attention, read and keep. The small parts of the toy can be swallowed or inhaled. So it changes it quite radically. And part of me thinks it might have been because of my book, because all of the things that changed are things I talk about in the book. So, for example, the difference between attention and warning. Uh, the, the mysterious middle sentence about the three-year age limit, which isn't there in all of them. And it adds in the article, the small parts of the toy. So, you know, I, I wonder if I changed history there, but, but it also Very shows yeah. it's interesting to think about how we respond subtly differently to warning and to attention, mm -hmm. whether one is, is more actionable than the other. So as someone who doesn't spend time thinking about what a translation really is might just say, oh, well, of course, this is a really straightforward, simple message. Uh, of course, all the translations will be identical. That's an easy thing to do, right? Of course, that's not exactly the case. That's not how uh, translating from one language to another works. 
take a moment to just, you know, do this seemingly mundane task of defining what translation actually is for us. I'm not sure I could define translation. I could probably define what translation is not. Yeah, sure. <laughs> translation is not the creation of a carbon copy of a message. There's always a slippage, sometimes a greater one, sometimes a lesser one. Indeed. There is something that's missed out because every language is to some extent its own world and the connotations of particular words, of syntax, of intonation, all sorts of things like that may differ slightly. And sometimes languages are close enough together that the differences are so minute as to not really be a problem. That's certainly the case with some kinds of official language. Things like poetry is much more difficult. Uh, but with some languages, the differences are so radical uh, that the act of translation itself is a kind of rewriting, if you like. So I think it's important that we acknowledge that even on an official document like this, there are decisions about what to translate as what, how to do it, what to emphasize, what not to emphasize, particularly in terms of things like word choice, uh, because these are not 32 identical translations. Right. And, and you know, we, we don't tend to think of something like officialese as having style, but that in and of itself is a style. It's a choice of conveying the language in a particular way. It is. And what's interesting is that some languages do officialese differently. So something like French will almost never drop articles. So the French translation of the Wadi message says the small pieces rather than small pieces, right? And various others of the Romance languages are the same. You don't drop articles even in a very official message such as this. In English, it has become something that is quite common. I talk in the book about astronaut language. Right, that, that sort of clipped form of language, and which which probably comes originally from the military, but I I don't know, and I would love to know how that kind of clipped military language may or may not work in other languages. Whether there's an equivalent of that in French or Russian or whatever. Yeah. Well, so 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 going back to the thing that I said earlier, which is like the um the assumptions that you know reading the English message makes, you know, things like, take, to take it to sort of the extreme, the fact that we measure age from the time of birth versus conception, that's a construct, or that an adult is reading on the child's behalf, or that we are a people that will take a disembodied voice that's written on a piece of paper as authoritative, and that we should listen to that, that, that children even have a word for toy, you know, an object designed to play with, you know, again, we, we we don't read the message as an ordinary person and, and, and think those things, but indeed, all of those are cultural constructs. And, 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 you, and you sort of run up against some of these issues when translating into ancient languages, conlangs, or uh, uh, minority well, it's, languages. It's interesting how ancient languages actually sometimes do better right. <laughs> than some other right. languages, because language was first written down for official purposes. It was the poetry and plays and epics that came later. So actually, the, the people I commissioned to do things like Egyptian or Sumerian and stuff, they didn't come back to me and say this is completely impossible. The translators who had the most difficulty were into languages that doesn't really have an official register, particularly those 
where even the concept of a warning message on a Kinder Surprise Egg is culturally alien. So I used the admittedly fairly extreme example in the book of the inhabitants of Sentinel Island, which is in the Indian Ocean and is one of the very few places in the world where uh, the indigenous people have been left alone, or there have been some violence sometimes between people who sought to, to visit, but they are lo- largely left alone. So their knowledge of us is extremely limited and, and based purely on what they can see, the occasional boat or a helicopter or something like that. And, and I went through the warning message and, and I realized that very little of it would really make any sense. But I do think that the term warning or attention almost certainly is a universal. I think we can probably say that. The idea that you prevent someone to come to harm. Now, how you do that and who issues that warning or when you issue that warning is culturally hugely variable. But the fact of warning is probably a a universal. But the Kinder Egg itself is, how do you even understand that? This is an object with a thin, inedible outer foil, an edible internal thing, but we can't be sure it would even be recognized as, uh, as food. A yellow capsule in the middle, the inside have these pieces of paper and these toys. These, these, this is not something you necessarily find in the wild. You do find edible plants, edible fruits that have an inedible stone inside. But to deliberately create something that is deliberately inedible inside for a purpose that can't even be guessed at, that's pretty, that would probably be pretty bizarre to the Sentinelese. And to some extent, it seems pretty bizarre to me when I think of it that way. You know, like human beings. Absolutely. Why do human beings create things that are for children, but can also kill children? That's quite a thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as you're like commissioning these new translations of the message, you refer to it as liberating the message. What did you learn from that goal? And I guess what I mean more specifically, um, what assumptions did you have going into that process of liberating and translating the message maximally? And what, what assumptions were challenged? Well, I really got going on this project actually during lockdown in 2020, which was a a very isolated time. And one of the reasons, although I'd done a bit of work on it a few years before, the reason why I sort of went for broke in trying to get as many translations as I could is it allowed me to reach out to people. It allowed me to make connections. And those connections were, I would say about 80, 90% of the time reciprocated and quite quickly too. A lot of people just love this, particularly certain endangered language activists were really into it. So that was a lovely thing. But I did have some concerns at times where I had to start thinking about the what I'm doing might not be quite as innocent as I thought. My original thought was I wanted as many indigenous languages of the Americas and Australia as I could, because as a way of, in my naivety, thinking this would be a way of supporting those languages as they fight back against marginalization. Now, That motivation, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But I don't think I realized fully about how such questions could be received as 
a little bit humiliating. It's not humiliating if I if I approach someone who speaks Luxembourgish, right? They don't need my help. Their status in the world is is secure. Uh, yes. But I saw a website when I was investigating one indigenous language that, that had a FAQ on it, FAQ on it. And it had all these questions saying things like, will you do my dog's name in your language? Will you write a birthday message in your language? Will you write this in your language? And I started to realize that those things are actually quite insulting, and which is why the website said, please don't ask us this, uh, because it treats the language as a novelty. Now, I had no intention of treating the language as a novelty, but they didn't know that because they didn't know me. Sure. So I, so I kind of throttled back a bit. I, and in particular, I throttled back in Australia because a lot of languages are endangered. The politics of it is delicate. And I did not want to be seen as the sort of person who was treating their language as something trivial. So that was something important that I learned. Although some people, some people from indigenous language communities did indeed receive the project positively, I did not want to push it too hard. I mean, on, on top of this level of not wanting to treat the language like, uh, like a novelty, what, what could you say about like some languages that don't actually have a written history, how, how those languages or speakers of those languages might actually disagree among themselves about the best way to translate it and, and, and thus, you know, also creating some tension. Well, some of some languages, the people I contacted had quite a lot of fun with it. So the Channel Islands, the British Crown Dependency near the coast of France, Jersey, Guernsey, Alderney and Sark, they all had Norman French dialects as their languages, although they're in Alderney, it's extinct. In Sark, it's almost extinct and it's heavily endangered in Jersey and Guernsey. But I contacted all of them. I managed translations in three of them. Uh, but I remember, I think it was the Jersey one. I contacted the official language support officer for the Jersey government. Uh, and she uh, sort of had to consult with different speakers about how you would actually do this because they're not used to doing this sort of thing. It, it's difficult. And the, the language has not been standardized because it was only a spoken language for so long. And that's the case with, with, with various other languages as well, that when people were writing them, they were almost creating the language anew. They were doing something with the language that, was, that people never intended to do. And I think some people found that quite exciting, but other people sent me reams of notes about the, the particular difficulties they encountered, which were fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're almost at time here, and I realize I forgot to ask you a question that I should have asked in the beginning, which is, is there a first message? Is, is like the original message recoverable? And do we know who wrote it or what, what arm of Ferrero wrote it? Um, yeah, what, what can you say about the origins of the message? Which, I, which, is, a funny, which is a funny thing to ask for a, uh, a mundane warning message. It sounds like we're talking about a classical text here, but you do kind of treat it in that way, which I love. One of the most interesting experiences of this whole thing was realizing that our world is awash with texts where we have no idea who wrote them, why they wrote them, when they wrote them, where they wrote them. And this is the case here. Ferrero is not a company that reveals its secrets very much. There is a big Ferrero collector's subculture, which Ferrero never engage with. Uh, I 
tried various routes to ask questions about this with the company and either had no response or a polite refusal to do so. So it's not clear any of this stuff. I mean, I did a lot of background research. I even went on LinkedIn to try and find X for our employees who would speak to me, but the ones I found either didn't respond or they, uh, or they said, no, I had nothing to do with it. But what I did have in the book is what I call the codex, which is a, a kinder collector's website, uh, which does show scans of warning messages dating back to the late 1980s. It's not clear even then what the original one was. It could well have been German, but it's also important to recognize that if you map changes of different messages over time, they change at different rates. Sometimes a, language, a message will change and nothing else changes. If there ever was a template, it's been lost over time. So it's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting that the first message may in fact be German because Ferrero is of course an Italian company and you would think Italian would be the uh the source language but perhaps not I, I don't actually remember from 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 the book wh why was it well, German? I, it, why do you think it might be German because that's the first one listed on the codex uh, there is oh, an oh, Italian right. one alongside it but it, it it looks like the German came out earlier than the Italian but of course there may be other ones that have never been found and no one ever thought to collect so we don't sure. know, but this is a multinational corporation, right? They did start from Italy and expand out, but by the time Kinder Surprises were launched, they were already established right across the world. So there's no, so there's no reason why Italy should be the place. They actually, while their headquarters is partly in Italy today, their corporate headquarters is in fact in Luxembourg. So they aren't quite as rooted as you might imagine. All right. Well, Keith, this has been a fascinating conversation. Before we sign off, where can listeners learn more about you? Thanks for the opportunity to plug myself. Uh, my website is khn-hawris.org, and you can find lots of information about the book, including extra material that I didn't include in the book or didn't have time to include in the book. And I'm on Twitter and all those other horrible things. Indeed. Uh, all right, Keith. Well, thanks again. My pleasure. 